0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for jo- joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also subscribe and rate and review the podcast at Apple, Google, and Spotify as well as several other podcast platforms. Uh, you can also check me out at patreon.com backslash soniccinema. You'll get exclusive uh Early access reviews, you'll get some original reviews for movies that I'm, older movies that I'm watching for the first time, and uh, you'll also get some, you'll also typically get at least one deep dive in a month. Uh, this month I'll be uh, covering the the progression of the uh, Daniel Craig Bond movies leading up to No Time to Die, which will be his final uh performance in the role that's at patreon.com backslash sonic Cinema. you can also check me out at twitch.tv backslash scuttle lemur and uh it's been a bit erratic over the past um over the past few weeks uh but hopefully i'll be able to get that back on a regular status and that is at twitch.tv backslash scuttle lemur so back in April, we began a new series on the Sonic Cinema podcast called Established Classics. And to recap, basically what I mean by that is i I'm basically referring to movies that have become so ingrained as defining the best in cinema that feels like they don't necessarily need to be seen to live on forever. And uh, for the purposes of this uh, series, uh, we're talking primarily about American movies prior to 1960 from the uh, first golden age of Hollywood. And uh, we're going to be... The first episode, we discuss three of the uh, all-time classics in Citizen Kane, Casablanca, and The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, for our next three, we're going to be dealing with movies that are no less classics but aren't quite... some aren't necessarily as easily definable in that as uh, others. Join me once again to discuss these movies is Timothy J. Cox. Thank you very much for joining me, Tim. Thank
1: you, Brian. Happy to be back.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that when I've been working on the trio of films to I uh, talk about with regards to like each episode, I basically want to... I don't necessarily, especially these, as the series starts, I don't necessarily want to repeat a filmmaker over and over. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, we'll will probably get there at some point because there are other Michael Curtiz films that would be well worth talking about, other John Ford movies that would be well worth talking about, and even some Orson Welles that would be well worth talking about. And certainly the three filmmakers, or at least two of the filmmakers, because I don't know if, the third one had another film within this criteria of time frame, um, since the one we're talking about today is his first film. But um, certainly with two of the filmmakers that we're going to be discussing today, they've they've done plenty of uh, great classics. And mm-hmm. the, the films we're going to be talking about today are Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, and Sidney Lumet's. 12 Angry Men. Uh, like like with uh, last time, we're going to start off with the first one, and we will begin with Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939, what many consider one of the best movie years of all time. Um, And it's hard not to argue with that with uh, Gone with the Wind, with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, with Wizard of Oz, with Stagecoach, and a... Uh, number of other terrific films. Sure. Um, what, is it, what is it about Frank Capra's movies do you think endure, or what, what about Frank Capra's great films do you think makes them endure the way they do?
1: I think there is an innate feeling of um, it, he shows us the best of what we could be. Um, Of course, you know, the thing about Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the character of Jefferson Smith, um, you know, he's this very naive guy. He goes to Washington to take up a a vacancy in the United States Senate, and he goes in with ideas of thinking that uh, he's going to be able to change the world. Yeah. And he gets there and he gets, you know, hit roadblocks and, of course, fines of corruption. And... He never loses hope. He never loses that that spark that just makes um, that ins- that should inspire yeah. people, not just as moviegoers but as Americans. Uh, the same thing with It's a Wonderful Life. You know mm-hmm. that we can all we can all relate to the story of, of George Bailey. Or um, you know you can't take it with you. I mean, mm-hmm. like this this zany family that you just absolutely love. And he just creates characters that are relatable and you love them and you admire them. You wish you could be them. I mean, you know, and of course, with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, it's easy to tie into um, what's going on currently in with, with politics. And, yeah. you know, uh, you wish that, uh, you know, if, if if someone like a Jefferson Smith did exist... And stood up and you know tried to stood up for his ideals and principles. Someone he would get three hundred nasty comments on Twitter. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like. Um, but the the enduring for me, if there's if there's one filmmaker that I could go back, you know, if I were an actor in the 1930s and 40s, that I would give my eye teeth to work with just to be a fly on the wall, just to see how he operates, Because was Frank Capra, mm-hmm. because if you. If you look at the movies that he made and the people who worked with him, he worked with a lot... Actors clamored to work with him because Mm. they knew that they were going to be in something that we were going to be talking about, you know, 60, 70 years later. Yeah. And I I think that's the enduring appeal of Frank Capra and his films. People would call them, yes, Capricorn and all of that, but I really think that his movies they just make you feel good and they make you yeah. like, God, why can't it be, why can't we, why can't we have Jefferson Smith's like this? Or why can't, mm. uh, you know, where is that idealism? Where is that optimism? Where is that sense of hope mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, is, is kind of sorely, uh, that you, you kind of wonder about right
0: now. Yeah. No. And I, I first reviewed, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, uh, Right around the time Obama was running for the first time in 2008. And I mean, I, you know, at the time, I mean, I, I, I think there are lava certainly when he was running that first time that you felt like he's, he's, he could be one of these idealistic uh, people along the lines of a Jefferson Smith, um, yeah. but who's somebody who was basic, who didn't have the naivete. That Jefferson Smith does when he first gets into Congress, because Obama had been there for a few years. Um, you know, I mean, and you know, certainly you can you can look back and see that there you know there are problems with the only, the that way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's hard to I it's one of the hard lessons, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, politics, and I still respect. Obama to a large degree, but at the same time, I mean, if you look back on his presidency, there are several things that are certainly, that would certainly give, that certainly give people pause. And I, but I think the way he continued to hold himself to is even outside of office is something that is aspirational and something that, you know, we definitely would like to see in more politicians and well,
1: I I think there you know with Jefferson Smith and uh, and using of uh, President Obama, there's a a general an innate um, decency, like you know that this is a a genuinely decent you know family person, mm-hmm. uh, family man um, has to make tough decisions. Um, but, like, never wavers from his, uh, his faith, mm-hmm. his idea. And, uh, and, you know, that again, that, uh, that optimism of, 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 like, yes, we can. This is what, like, what we can be. And I think that's why, you know, this movie... I think another reason why this movie stands the test of time because when you think about it, there are not many movies that really tackle this topic of yeah. specifically United States politics. And the only mm. other movie I can think of off the top of my head is the American president, which is also a brilliant movie. Um, but like, when you think about like through the history of, of motion pictures, certainly I don't think any movie tackles politics quite like uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. And and it still plays very well. It's still from a movie from 1939. It still rings true. I watched it recently, and it and it it still resonates. It's like yep, like you know, like mm-hmm. all of the kinds of uh, arguments and same kinds of uh, you know kinds of characters that we have on, on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, uh, very. This I mean, uh, the script that Sidney Buckman. Lewis Foster and Miles Connolly that they wrote for the film is pretty pretty on the mark, pretty on yeah. the
0: money. No, I, I would agree with that, and I, I think that is one of the reasons that Mr... I, I would agree with you on one, that being one of the reasons that Mr. Smith uh, endures so much because of the fact that it feels like... It feels like it's taking you on the process of how the Congress operates along with Jefferson Smith. And I think that's... that's And it's giving a... So that Jefferson Smith isn't the only one learning on the fly. We're kind of learning on that, too. I mean, yes, we can go into... Yeah, I mean, we learn sort of the basic generalities of like, oh, this is how Bill becomes a law, so on and so forth. But this is one of the first few films um, that really shows you sort of... (coughs) the real nuts and bolts in yeah. committee meetings, in just uh, the way politics go, plays into it, the way, you know, personal favors play into it with graft and all of that stuff. And I, you know, it's it's funny because of the fact, I mean, you know, you, you would think 80 plus years later, you would hope that, you know, that type of thing wouldn't go on, but of course it does. And, I mean, it's it, It's just one of those things where, you know, it's, this, that's another, and sadly another reason why this movie will, is timeless is because of the fact that it feels as current as it did in
1: 1939. Yeah. Well, and, you know, any chance to, to watch... Jimmy Stewart. I mean, the the cast, of course, Jimmy Stewart, Thomas Mitchell, great Claude Rains, uh, you know, Gene Arthur, uh, Eugene Palette, who I always loved. And, you know, he was just one of those great character actors and just, and this movie's it, it's got them all. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, and you, the, the performances, they all ring true. They're, you know, you, you see the heartbreak in Claude Rains of a man who, once probably had that same idealistic spark Mm -hmm. i think it was like a divine spark and it's just like you lose it and it's i don't know if it's cynicism or it's kind of like you know well you know you just got to go along with the crowd and uh you know don't try to you can't you can't move mountains and Mm -hmm. that's what jefferson smith tries to do he tries to move mountains and you know you know, you kind of wondered, I, I always wondered that if if they ever came back and did like a sequel, like with, or not, a, I guess a sequel, like a follow-up with Jefferson, Dave, uh, Je- Jefferson, Jefferson <laughs> Davis, Jefferson Davis, <laughs> gotta be careful on that one. Yeah. That of like 25, 30 years later mm-hmm. of like, you know, did he remain, you know, this, did he change? Yeah. Did the, did the work, did it, did it break him? You know, as it as it may have, you know, mm-hmm. it's a hard job. I mean, oh, it's I can't and anyone in that. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, even you know, and it's funny because we have we have almost we've we've got more access to polit- politicians unfiltered now because of social media than we've ever had it anytime in our lives, and you you still feel like it's you still feel like it. You know, it's hard not to see some people uh, changed over the years, and you know, it, it's you you get more of an honest is assessment of them. I uh, and you can kind of tell that, like if if people are you know whatever people are saying on social media, you can kind of tell that you know you can kind of sort of start to tell whether it's inauthentic or not
1: yeah i think like a, the the a genuine i mean because people they have to get their they have to get that opinion out because you know if they're clicking on what someone that what they say it's going to be it's going to be retweeted and it's newsworthy and mm-hmm. you know it, i mean it's all about trying it's getting face time really yeah. you know whether you know if if, if they're talking about you on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or what have you, you're you're making some kind of an impact, whether it's you know whether we like it or not, you know whether we like. I mean, I, I kind of wish we we went back to the old days where we didn't know <laughs> every thought that yeah. was in there, you know. That's social media. That's the times. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know if all of that's going to be the death of us, but. Uh, <laughs>
0: It it could very well be who who knows what the way things are going. Um, yeah. I you know it's funny I always kind of forget that Claude Rains plays uh, Senator Payne in this until I start to watch it. And I you know it's one of those movies like we talked about Claude Rains and Casablanca uh, in the first episode episode of this series. And I you know he's he's got to be one of the greats character actors in in movie history
1: he really was and he uh he really could i mean you go back and you read about him and he was prop. i think he was betty davis's favorite actor to work with he was always prepared um and he there's there's a thing that uh my teacher stanley harrison used to say about character actors he would always kind of equate it like the sixth man on a basketball team, like not the star, someone who comes off the bench, mm-hmm. scores a couple of clutch points, and then sits back down. And but and then they they kind of steal the game. Claude Rains would steal mm-hmm. pretty much just about every movie. I mean, Casablanca. Uh, I even the I remember the, the Phantom of the Opera that he did in nineteen. I think it was nineteen forty three. Yeah, that he, he was marvelous. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then of course you know. Uh, Notorious, which mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, he could, he could do it all. He could be sinister. He could be charming. He could be incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. And brought some much needed humor. And in this, it's kind of like you do get the sense that his senator Payne admires Jeff, but it's he kind of be, like like a, a father. It's like you know, you, you you can try, but you're gonna lose. Yeah, you can try mountains, but you're gonna lose. And you know it's uh it's, it's 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 an extraordinary performance one of many that he gave mm-hmm.
0: that yeah and uh i i would be remiss if i didn't bring him up in the invisible man which i think is yeah. he, he is absolutely tremendous in that and that it's part of the reason that's one of my favorite of the universal monster movies and yes he's he's terrific in Fam of the opera as well um yeah. i you know it it's Seeing you, seeing how Smith, I love how how complicated Payne is as a character, and how he he remains resolutely as the political insider, the Washington insider throughout the entire movie, and you can tell this because of the fact that the way he the way he's having to go through the process of trying to stall Smith on the on the bill for Willard Creek and all of that stuff. And uh, and you see, but you also see, especially in those early scenes with the two, of the way that Smith seems to have an effect on him. And a, a positive effect, too. And to where you can see that when he's eventually having to go for the kill with Jefferson Smith and trying to Derail what he's trying to do and bring up the corruption in washington you you can tell that it's something he's not you can tell that there are time that he's not uh comfortable with it at times
1: yeah. well, it's kind of like you know he made a deal with the devil and you know when he has to the devil comes to collect and yeah. he has he has no choice really i mean it's kind of like uh, it's the life he chose, you know. He chose to go that path. I mean, when he, if if Payne, when he came to Washington, he remained, you know, idealistic. He probably wouldn't have been reelected. No. I mean, no. reality. You know, it's a sad reality. I mean, uh, I mean, that's the thing, thing. Is it? It's like even in the movie, I don't know the extent of the research that uh, the writers did, but it's, it's, it's really. On the money, like really, just about like the nuts and bolts, which I don't even necessarily know. I mean, you know, you read about it a little bit. You you watch C-SPAN from time to time, and your your head explodes. (laughs) Like it's just like the the back and forth. But like, uh, but this is probably the movie that people go to 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 learn about that world. Yeah. and it, it it holds up very very well. Mm. And at the at the at the center of it, you know, you do have this great performance from Jimmy Stewart. I mean, this was kind of like his big. Uh, he had done "You Can't Take It With You" with Capra, I think, a year or two before, and he had knocked around as like uh, a couple of actors. Uh, but this was, I think, like his big. Yeah. His. And um, you know, he was he was extraordinary. He he was as he was in everything, but Mm -hmm. this I think uh, really just it just just put him on the map and just that Jimmy Stewart way, Mm -hmm. like, like I mean, he's someone that we, you know, would we admire, we can get behind him, we can we relate to him, like, you know, there are actors like him and Henry Fonda and Jack Lemon and Tom Hanks and. Steve Carell to a certain extent of like they're they're just they're so familiar to us like they're mm-hmm. people that they're just so wholesome and good and honest and you know no one's gonna break them and that's it's why they've been, it's why they have endured and will
0: endure yeah and it's funny because of the fact that last month um I I just discussed uh, vertigo on a discussion about Hitchcock and it, it's it's fascinating just how much mileage, even in a movie that doesn't really show that good-natured Jimmy Stewart that we all know and love from mm-hmm. movies like this and It's a Wonderful Life, it goes to show how much mileage a filmmaker like Hitchcock could get out of that persona by having even having him do things they're so far away from that persona. Yeah. And that, that was one of the extraordinary things about Vertigo. And and I mean, even and it's funny because when he did rope with Hitchcock early on in their collaboration, you you he's still very much that Jimmy Stewart that we saw in Caprad's films. And then mm-hmm. when you see Rear Window, it gets a little bit more unhinged than the man who wasn't the man who knew too much is you know sort of a go back going back to a, a different Hitchcock persona and then you have Vertigo which where Stewart is it's it's funny because Stewart does feel completely uh broken away from that persona.
1: Well and then when you see if you were to see any of the Anthony Mann westerns that he did in the 50s and 60s, like the man from Laramie or Winchester for 73, where you saw a dark how he could be dark and, and and brutal and like, uh, and those movies challenge that persona, but the audiences went with him, mm-hmm. Like they went with him because they, you know, they, he was just, he, he was, he was them. He was you and me. Like we yeah. saw a screen. It's like, God, you know, to be Jimmy Stewart. You know, like I, I can admire that even when they're playing, you know, uh, uh, doing something uh, different, but uh, now this was, I think, the movie that really really broke out, mm. and uh, and again, and in and in what a year for movies! I mean, of 39, which you know, I mean, this was uh, this was his big breakout, and of course, he worked you know constantly up until like the late 70s,
0: yeah. Um, Gene Arthur plays Saunders, who's uh. Jefferson Smith's Cynical secretary. She is she's wonderful in this. And it's oh. it's it's great to see, and even more than Pain, you you really see how Smith's just good-natured self and the then you see the vulnerability in him as things start to go sideways. Like you really start to see the cynicism of Saunders kind of curdle into anger at what Washington is doing to this guy. And yeah. her 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 um her speech about how a bill becomes a law, how it truly becomes a law, is is probably about as peak of dark comedy as I think we got out of that era. Because it's just very it it's so jaded and cynical but i mean it's also completely it it, based on what we know now it's completely honest as far as how that how that process works
1: yeah and she uh you know there are there are actors who who they just they read a line and it's just it's just like no one could do it better she mm-hmm. had that that great cynicism and just that great, uh, I don't know, you can't even put it into words. It, it, it just works. Yeah. And then you got her and you got Thomas Mitchell. And like, I mean, it's just all of the things. And not only, you know, with about politics, but about the press. That's yeah. another thing. You know, like, you know, uh, you know it's like they're all looking for, the, of course, the juicy story and like, you know, like... And, Kind of obviously not different from how it is today. I mean, mm. of course, it's now. we don't know what's news and what's entertainment. Uh, when we discuss network, we'll, uh, yeah. we'll probably.
0: <laughs> we'll-, well, and it's it's funny because I, I think the the one, one of the most entertaining montages in this movie is also the one that either wouldn't be able to. Wouldn't happen in real life because there would genuinely be consequences, or it would happen and there would be no consequences. I'm not sure which one is worse. Is the sequence <laughs> where, after his words have been misinterpreted by the press, he goes punching out reporters? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, can
1: you imagine? Oh my god, like today, I mean, you know, god.
0: That's what I'm saying. I'm not sure which way it would go today, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> you know,
1: give it time. I'm sure someone's going to punch out a reporter. Yeah. <laughs> or, or vice versa. You know, like, yeah. uh, give, it time, give it time.
0: But, um... I I love that it's 11 minutes into this movie before Jefferson Smith is introduced. It's... it's and, even and before that point, or I should say, before Jimmy Stewart is introduced, Jefferson Smith it, we hear about before Jimmy Stewart even comes on screen, and we already kind of feel like we understand who the character is. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's that's the brilliance of Capra. It's like mm-hmm. setting it up, like you know, and not just for the audience, but like the people you know in, in Washington. It's like. Like, you know, because with newbies, you know, they all come in the door and they probably all come in with big ideas and, you know, thinking, you know, like this movie's probably inspired them,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and, but it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it was, you know, the, the scene in the, in the end of the film with Jimmy Stewart, where he's, you know, with the filibuster and all of that, that's a scene that's often played, you know, when there's like a dedication to Jimmy Stewart's uh, yeah. career. It's it's extraordinary, like, you know, like what he goes through, because it's just um, and that that's the one where it's like, you know, finally, we all have we've he's had enough mm-hmm. and he's and he's going to do the one thing that you never do in Washington. Tell the truth.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's and it's still, you know, and every once in a while, you know, when I'll. I'll think of that scene and if I ever I watch the news and someone, you know, gets up and make some speech and, uh, you know, and, it, and I, the whole time I immediately just think of that scene. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, they're going Jefferson, they're going full Jefferson Smith here.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, the beginning of that filibuster scene is, is so tense. It, it yeah. really there's so much suspense at what he's going to do, how he, whether, how he manages to pull it off, whether Saunders is Coached him up enough on how to make it work, how he can hold on to the floor, and I th- that that sequence is the start of where I think Harry Carey as the president of the Senate really shines God. because, oh, yeah. and he's... you can tell that he's very much on Smith's side. Mm-hmm. You you can tell that he he respects Smith to a large degree and it's 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 appropriate that he's the last image that we see that he's he's like okay yeah adjourn everything cuz like by that point like the the filibuster's over and because of yeah. how exhausted he is and uh, you know it, everything has worked out i i mean part of the reason this movie connects with me is because i'm always a fan of the underdog in a movie and sure. i i think that's that's i mean i've i've talked about it several times how i i'm a sucker for the underdog sports movie um oh, yeah. and uh mr smith goes to washington's ultimately one of those underdog movies and i mean to a certain extent it's a wonderful life is too but it's a different it's it's a different riff on that formula and i think that's one of the great things about these two those two movies in particular that are so striking in addition to just how drastically how much darker uh stewart is as george bailey like you can almost see the cynicism that we wonder whether would happen with jefferson smith sort of come in in george bailey's character it's a wonderful and it's a wonderful life because basically, like everything, every dream that he's had in his life eventually gets stripped away to where he's just lived this average life. And it's like, how does and you you can sort of see that as sort of an extension of like if there was a follow-up to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jefferson Smith about twenty five, thirty years down the road, would he have been in that same position, you kind of almost wonder uh that's that you kind of wonder maybe that was something in cap in the back of Capper's mind when he and Stewart made it to Wonderful Life.
1: It's true, it's possible. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um but yeah, I mean there's there, there's a lot to talk about because of the fact that in this movie and i I think the thing that always the thing that works so beautifully about Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the degree of authenticity about the way Washington works, but at the same time, you can tell it's still a movie because the way things happen in the movie moves at such an accelerated rate. yeah, that like the Not idea the path that path all path. of these different things could come come in the matter of a day in a filibuster, it's like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's necessarily believable, but it it's ultimately, it's one of those things where it's like, Capra understands the importance of making the implausible plausible emotionally because of the yeah. fact for what emotionally you're trying to capture in a film. And I think that's the most important thing they does in Mr. Smith Goes Washington.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, From there, uh, let's jump ahead to 1950 and Billy Wilder's classic of film noir and Hollywood in Sunset Boulevard. Woo! Something Uh, (laughs) lighthearted. Yeah. Certainly. I... You know, and as I've gotten into uh, Billy Wilder over the years, it's like I've I've never it's never ceased to amaze me just how how versatile his his particular brand of storytelling is going between genre and genre. You could do something like slap sticky and uh, campy like some like it hot. You can do something that's braced with satire, like one, two, three. And then you can have the satire go another way, like Sunset Boulevard, which is very much a a satire of Hollywood.
1: And then, you know, he can do a punch in the gut with, like, uh, The Lost Weekend yeah. or, uh, or I mean, he was to me, he was probably from a writer-director standpoint, he was probably one of the best. Yeah. Just because of the way of the, the, the different types of genres that he hit and the different types of stories. I mean he was the one that, you know, everybody also everybody clamored to work with. I mean, that's uh, why he was one of the best, and that's why I think he had what I think, eight Oscars, I think. Uh, you know,
0: so. he he yeah, he was he was nominated I don't know if they won that me, but he was certainly nominated for that many because in through a variety of no nah, Probably did have that may, Yeah. Now that I think about, it. between Lost Weekend and Lost Weekend, and The Apartment were both Best Picture winners. I'm he sure he got. Oscar. Yeah, I'm sure he had to get nominated for several for this one and in Double Indemnity. I can't oh, imagine God, him can I, not. That
1: double Indemnity. My God. That's, yeah. You know, I mean, The Apartment. I mean, I mean, so many. Witness for the Prosecution. Sabrina. I mean, mm-hmm. the variety of. But this is the movie, whenever I talk about this movie, I always have to compare it to All About Eve, which came out the same year, which is a different attack on the entertainment industry, dealing more kind of in the theater world. Um, You know, All About Eve was the more awards. Yeah. But Sunset Boulevard is the movie, when I watched it recently, it felt like fresh like it it felt so fresh like you know like they just they just got it like Hollywood like just and just the way that it's a town like Washington it can kind of eat you up and spit you out yeah that's kind of it did the Norma Desmond and it It certainly did to to Joe Gillis
0: mm-hmm yeah, and I, I love, because it's like, you know, we talked about Double Indemnity for a little bit, where it's like that's very much a clear film noir. You can see the blueprint of Double Indemnity in something like A Big Sleep, and The Maltese Falcon. It very much is following that idea, but this takes the style of film noir and puts it in a Hollywood story. And it, I mean, the comparison... I didn't even think about the comparison of uh, Washington and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington versus Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard, but it's actually very, it's very true. The idea that uh, they're both sort of monolithic uh, institutions where they are not forgiving of, they're, they're unforgiving when it comes to People that they just have no use for anymore, and it's like it's that's one of the that's one of the tragedies of Norma Desmond. But it's like it was funny because when I was watching it recent, when I was watching it for the uh, podcast, I couldn't help but also think of Great Expectations either. Mm -hmm. I I thought a little bit about Great Expectations and with uh, Norma Desmond, the Miss Havisham role.
1: Yeah,
0: and uh, I think
1: that. From yeah, because it's the, the parallels of like you know, uh, you know, used to be you know, young and gorgeous and popular and famous and revered, and you know, that's when you're not looked upon that way anymore, that's a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like you know, in Hollywood now, why you know, if um, if, if if you're don't age, you know, or don't age, or you know, you you go out and you spend thousands of dollars and get plastic surgery or mm-hmm. what have you, and then you know you're ha- haunted by the tabloids or you know people can tell you know on, and it's it's uh, this is the movie that kind of it it, it frightens people about yeah. Hollywood about yeah. how it can. Chew you up and spit you out. And mm-hmm. I think you really—it it is unforgiving of, um, of, of if you've outlived your usefulness. I guess mm-hmm. uh, terrible way to say it, but that it's kind of how it, a, a cynical outlook. But it's it's a cynical it's a cynical town. It's a cynical world because you know if it, for every Norma Desmond, there's probably a long line of norma desmond's out there younger yeah. you know and that's it's a sad uh, sad fact
0: yeah and the the way that wilder plays with genre here because it's not just film noir it's not just hollywood drama you also have dark comedy in here you also have horror movie really with the uh look of desmond's um estate in in this movie I uh, yeah. you you can't help but think of horror and the way that he the way they and it also it it comes it also begins with a voice from beyond the grave because William Holden's character by the time the movie is started is is already dead and he's lying face down in a pool. yeah. And uh, it's basically him talking from beyond the grave. And the way that Wilder brings those genres together is, it's it, its one of the best films he ever made. It's very clearly one of the best films he ever made in a yeah. career of great films.
1: <laughs> well, and it's, it's the movie also that, you know, you, you, you watch it and you, you try to figure it out. You learn something new every time you watch mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, you kind of... I remember the first time I watched it, I, I was really young when I first watched it, and I thought, God, Gloria Swanson is, is so big. But it works. Mm-hmm. It, it works. It's kind of like, you know, to use a comparison, it's kind of like if Christopher Walken had played you know there there are there are actors that are, like that can kind of get away with you know bigness yeah and, like uh, and with her like it it would and if and if and if someone like a betty davis had had done it mm-hmm. I don't know if it would have worked like I think it had to be gloria Swanson, like you know who was a you know a, a feigned um silent film actress
0: mm hmm I I love how she is still very much a silent film actress, and the theatricality of that performance is what makes it so memorable, and it's it's also part of what makes the character so heartbreaking.
1: That's it. Yeah, it's operatic. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, but it works, because it is so heartbreaking, because Mm -hmm. she wants so badly to have what she once had Mm -hmm. which you know there are theories wondering that if she ever be popular but if she ever was that big Mm. you know uh, but i can and the fact that you know it's the pictures that got small yeah like uh, it's not her it's it's the world the world is against her
0: well, and, like and, and and you bring up an excellent point as to whether it, the reality was whether she is was ever that big. Yeah. Um and I mean that's that's part of the tragedy in this is that I mean you you see you, you can also see this as a psychological thriller because of the fact that it's like I mean, Gills is Gillis is essentially trapped out of circumstance. Uh, he he's basically he he originally just shows up at Desmond's house to hide his car, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't get repossessed. And then he stumbles into this situation where he could find himself with a job. And you know, it I think this was before I think I I think I I'd, I'd heard of Eric von Sterling be. For this, I don't think I'd seen Greed yet, which is actually the only film of his I have seen at this point. But um, it's it's really a his performance is it's it's so arch and it's in a way it's as theatrical as Gloria Swanson's is, but it's also more subtle, and it's because of the fact that he's going more for they're both longing after something. She's longing for the fame that she feels like she lost when the silent era ended. He's longing for her and it's really, and you know, he's content to let her cling to his, her fantasy of what her life, what her celebrity was. And it's, it's, it's kind of a lovely sacrifice on his his part.
1: Yeah. It, uh, you know, the thing about Hollywood is that, you know, but in these movies is that, you know, you come to Hollywood with, a, uh, in many respects, a pipe dream, mm-hmm. you know, to, and when you get a little taste of that fame, popularity, whatever, people know you, people, you know you get a good table at a restaurant or, you know, I mean, what have you, I mean, all of those perks that when you lose that, that's, that's got to be heartbreaking. I mean, there are, I mean, you know, there are countless stories of of actors, you know, or singers or what have you, where some form of that has happened, you know, up is down, black is white, and, you know, um, here today, gone tomorrow. And it all started with, this story, this is the quintessential, you know, mm-hmm. today, gone tomorrow kind of story. And, and, it, and of course it's endured, you know, uh, not only with the movie, but through the Broadway musical, which I know they're making a movie version of the musical. Yeah. Glenn Cliff, the movie. I mean, I know that it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> development. I'm sure COVID had something to do with delaying it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but finally, and, um, And I had seen Glenn Close, and and it it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Trying to, you know, like operatic, but also haunting. Yeah. And haunted. That's what I've always with Norma Desmond. Like she was always haunted that if she stops believing the pipe dream, she's done.
0: Yeah.
1: Won't have anything to. So the pipe dream is life for her.
0: Yeah. And there's a. uh... There's such a there's such a wonderful psychological aspect of this movie too, because of the fact that it really plays into ideas of loneliness. It really plays into ideas of codependency, and you know it's like everybody's kind of got a degree of codependency in this movie. Like Gillis is like the basically the 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 push and pull of Gillis's arc is essentially it's like does he want. To return to a normal life where he could, you know, be, you know, he could end up just kind of forgotten on the skirts, outskirts of Hollywood? Or does he want to continue life with Norma? Because, you know, I mean, you can obviously tell by Norma Desmond's suicide attempt early in the film, at a certain point in the film, it's essentially, it, the only reason she does that is as a form of emotional blackmail to keep Gillis there. Sure. Like she's desperate to keep him there. So what's going to get him to stay? Oh, she's going to try to kill herself. And, um, it's, it's just one of those things where the, there are so many different layers that are so many different ways of approaching, this film. The score by Franz Waxman is absolutely beautiful. Wow. Really, you you listen to his work in noir, you listen to his work in horror, and it just is it's enchanting. It's it's as enchanting as Swanson's performance. It's as remarkable as the production design. I Norma Desmond's house is probably one of the most iconic pieces of production design in film history.
1: And, of course, you know, also this was the movie that, you know, William Holden was an actor who had knocked around for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he had done Golden Boy 1939, which I think was one of his first movies, and he had almost been fired from the film. But Barbara Stanwyck became a dear friend and kind of saved him. And But he really knocked around for the next decade, not really making waves. And this was his big break out i think and uh you know from here then he worked with wilder again several times mm-hmm. Stalin, and uh and he's extraordinary in this because you see also he has a little bit of idealism but also you know what kind of what you need a little healthy dose of arrogance you know in in hollywood mm-hmm. uh you know, he, uh, and then he gets in too deep with, uh, with Norma.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, you, you basically, you basically almost know from right off the bat from, that when he, when he lets her lure him in, there's, you, you understand why he's going to probably end up on the, in, in that pool. Yeah. And, um, it's, You know, there are so many just haunting moments. I and the thing is, I I think but at the same time, one of the most painful moments and also one of the most darkly funny moments in the movie is where they go to the Paramount stage to visit with Cecil B. DeMille, Mm, who is actually filming one of his films at that time. And you you get a lovely you you get a lovely moment with them. Where they reconnect, and you feel like there's a a a genuine affection, but at the same time, you go back to you hear what some of the things Demille says away from her, and you kind of see words like there, like you, like you said, it's like maybe she wasn't as big of a star as or as much of an icon as she thinks she was. And uh then obviously the reason he was trying to get a hold of her. And uh, you know, I I think it's a it's a quiet mercy for him to say, well, don't worry about this one, try to get another one. As far as the car. And it's there's there's I mean, that right there, that moment right there could be expanded into a feature film and it'd be fascinating. And the fact that it's just one Sequence out of this see this movie, which has so many great sequences, and right up to right including a scene of Stroheim's character, Von Stroheim's character playing poker with friends, which includes other silent film stars, including the great Buster Keaton. Um, it's there's just so much richness to this. And it's like I That's what I love about watching Wilders work, and that's why I love about discovering new Wilder that I hadn't seen yet is the fact that it's like there's so much different there are so many different things in his films to latch on to where even if even if somehow you're not a fan of the film as a whole, there's probably going to be at least one or two elements that really entertain you.
1: Well, and also the thing about Billy Wilder is that there's nothing, there's nothing fake about, yeah. like, I mean, the, the, the intentions and the objectives, like, they, people fight for them. People fight to the death for them. Yeah. And uh, even in the comedies, and it's just like, uh, I mean, that's why all of his movies are going to, uh, you know, endure even long after we're gone.
0: Yeah. And uh, if if you haven't, if you're listening to this, you haven't watched Sunset Boulevard. I couldn't re- recommend more. It's it's one of the best films Wilder's ever made. And basically, whenever you could start with pretty much any great Wilder film, and it'll it'll lead you into a direction that you won't necessarily see coming, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And I that that's one of the reasons I love. Uh, reconnecting with his films i i will i i think my personal favorite of his is uh one two three with james cagney as a coke executive i -hmm. i I love the slapstick elements of that it's fun um it is available on kino lorber but like sunset boulevard is readily available some like it hot's part of criterion collection ace in the hole double indemnity has been well served over the years the apartment has been well served over the years there's there's just a lot of great ways to go the third film that we're going to talk about is actually a directorial debut a feature directorial debut i will say i uh, and i would not have guessed that that was i didn't necessarily think about the fact that this was a directorial debut this is so in preparation for this podcast this was actually my first time watching Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. I'd heard about it. I'd just never gotten around to seeing it. And I am so glad that I know about it now. I'm so glad <laughs> that I know it now. It is, is a tremendous piece of drama. And the fact that Lumet came out swinging like this, his first time out is extraordinary. Um. And it's 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 a screenplay by Reginald Rose, and it's simply about twelve jurors, who many of whom are looking to commit to convict a kid of murder, and Henry Fonda's character Juror Eight presents his qu- case for acquittal and. Gradually, over the 96 minutes of the movie, we see, as people continue to talk through the case, how precarious that line between whether somebody's innocent or somebody's guilty, when there's doubt presented, can be. And the thing that I love about this, first of all, is the fact that the only time we see the only times we see outside of the room are the beginning and the end. We see him Mm -hmm. in the courtroom. We see the defendant. So we get him in our eyes. We see what he looks like. And we almost see it from the perspective of the jurors. The way Lumet... We don't see the jurors until they enter the room where they're going to deliberate. And from there, it basically becomes... And seeing it, you know, naturally it starts eleven to one, with Fonda's character being the one, and gradually we start to figure out what's going on with the case. And that is, it's such a brilliant structure, it's such a simple structure to make the movie that way, and it it's it's just riveting from start to first. And it's, I will say it's it's fine because. I understand why they kind of did it because it it adds a level of tension to this because of the fact that they only have like they barely have one working band. The fact that this is the hottest day of the summer, the hottest day of the year, something like that. It's a very familiar trope now. I don't know that this movie necessarily needs it, but it just does it does add a visual component of the Movie because people are getting in front of the windows because people, the fan isn't working, and all of that stuff. That is, it it really is compelling.
1: Well, and it really adds to the psychological. Like, you put 12 people in a room, it's hot, they just want to get it over with. Yeah, they just they, the guy's got Jack Warden's got the baseball tickets, the ad exec Robert Weber, he just wants to get back to work. Um. Henry Fonda is, you know, he probably wants to get back, but he wants to give this the chance. And the amazing thing is, even from the beginning, you see the judge is even, like, you know, when he's like reading, he says, you know, he's just, he's just, he's bored, he's hot, he just wants yeah. to get to it. And there, they've already, he has already, uh, you know, put the verdict down, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, they this shouldn't take long. And you put twelve men in a hot box, and tempers are going to flare. I mean, this this movie to me is is the gold standard of of ensemble acting. I mean, anytime yeah. anybody asks me, what's what's the movie if you want to watch acting,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: want to watch like, excellence. This is the movie. And you, and you go around, in this cast, you go around that table. Every single one of these actors are people who have excelled in every possible medium, radio, television, theater. Um, you know, and and they were also perfectly cast. Yeah. Like, like, their looks, their voices. Like, you put John Fiedler and Lee J. Cobb next to each other. John Fiedler's got that feeble, like meek voice. Lee, Lee Cobb's got that growl, Ed Begley, G- Ed Begley, you know? And so the casting was, it was so specific. Yeah. Because Sidney Lumet wanted to show all types of, of people because we've all been in juries. We've all, you know, and we've all wondered when we go into, because of this movie, when you go into a jury, you wonder if you're gonna have this kind of scenario. Yeah. I mean, this is I mean, this is a movie that's been studied in, in, in psychiatry in psychology classes about like the psychological effects of being in a room with strangers and it's hot and you just wanna you don't even care that that uh, yeah. you may not care about the the innocent's guilt. You just you just wanna get it over with. Yeah. Henry Fonda is the one person that says, no, we're, we, we need to talk it out because it's not easy for me to just send a person to death.
0: No. No, and, and it shouldn't. shouldn't be. It, it really yeah. shouldn't be. And I, I love that... I love that you see the natural biases come out when each character is talking. You see the natural biases against... Teenagers, you see where that's coming from when it comes to some characters. You see why some things, you know, and then you, you, you mentioned Jack Warden, who he, he just wants to get to his ball game. And the, the payoff to that is, oh, well, guess what? It's starting to rain. So chances are you wouldn't get a ball game today anyway. But, um, you don't know that until the time comes where he's, already sort of on he's already started to lean into the other direction and basically seeing this is, this is in a way it's if we could have genuine debates about the issues now this is about as close as I think we could get because obviously you would have people who would just continue to dig in who would just be seemingly unmovable, in immovable in their convictions.
1: Well, we're seeing it now. Yeah, I mean, with uh, with you know the the debates about masks or the, is the vaccine effective? Is you know that? I mean, it's it's all the same thing. Like you know these the the, the protests and all of that. Yeah. it's like people are just so convinced that. They're right, and they're and the other person is wrong, and well, and, and what it does, they're, they're not, and that's the problem I think with social media is that we're not talking to each other, we're sniping at each other, we're trying to just come up with clever lines, yeah, uh, or and you know just to be to get clicks, yeah, to get more followers. The thing about what Henry Fonda is doing in this movie is. He's breaking it down, and he's not. And the and the beautiful thing is, is that Henry Fonda, all he does, all he says is, "I want to talk." Yeah. That's all he, I want to talk about it. He doesn't come in and say, you know, "How dare you," uh, you know. He doesn't get angry about it.
0: He, no. No.
1: Just I am. We're here to do. We're here for a duty. We're here, and you know, we've been here what, five minutes and I can't just... Maybe he is guilty, but yeah, I think we owe it to the process. I think we owe it to ourselves yeah. to have a conversation about it. I think that's... We've gotten away from that. People mm-hmm. are not talking to each other. And, and that's, that's the problem.
0: And I think one of the keys in this movie is when Henry Fonda says... Like, look. I mean, I have no problem. I I have no problem voting guilty if after we've talked that's how I feel. I have no problem going that way. And I love that he's he is not set. He's he's almost the one person who's not really set in his ideas of guilt or innocence in this case. Oh yeah, and you
1: get. Yeah, you get everybody's yeah. take on immediately. Like just you know, yeah, it's it, it, it's 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 extraordinary. Like what, like you get these little hints about each character throughout that Henry Fonda hears, and then it's like you know that he he, he uses on them basically yeah. not in a nasty way, but it's kind of like well you thought this, and then then you know it, it's it's so it's brilliantly done. And for a for a film debut, for a feature film debut, Sidney Lamette had been he'd been an actor in the theater. He had he was one of the you know most popular directors of live television. Um, I should mention also. So in 1953, this was on Studio One, I believe it was. Twelve Angry Men was first presented on on live television. Yeah. And it was, I think it was Robert Cummings, Edward Arnold, who was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I the, it, this, I think it's only an hour. Mm-hmm. And of course, they, they expanded uh, it greatly for the feature film. And I think it was Franklin Schaffner, I believe, who directed it for the, the television version. Mm-hmm. But and it became a huge smash hit. Yeah. And then I think Henry Fonda saw it. And I don't Know the circumstances of how he got Sidney Lumet involved, but Henry Fonda was also the producer of the film.
0: Yeah,
1: and gave Sidney Lumet his shot, and then of course, you know, I think what I think they rehearsed it for a couple of weeks, and that when they, because he he always rehearsed all of his films. Mm. He would rehearse for like two or three weeks, and then they they would come in and then would just do a couple of takes, and he would always come in under budget, and everyone. A lot of these, if you look at a lot of these actors, they would all work with him uh, again many, many, many times. And
0: well, I mean, Jack probably, Gordon was in the verdict. Twenty five years uh, later. Oh so. yeah, the
1: verdict. <laughs> and you know, it's probably, in my opinion, probably one of the greatest fil- feature film directorial debuts ever. Because,
0: yeah. You know, I, he was
1: working with some heavy hitters, some veteran actors, um, but. You know, they, they, they put their trust in this uh, this young director and mm-hmm. they they made magic.
0: Yeah. It's no, it's it's a it's a wonderful film and I I think it is incredibly important that we don't know we we don't know names of any of the characters of yeah. of any of the jurors before the very end. And I, I think that's that's important because of the fact that um it keeps those it keeps it keeps us from personalizing any of these character any of these jurors beyond what we hear them say. And basically basically we we come to they define themselves by how they feel about the case. Mm-hmm. and how they feel about life going forward, and I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about the way this film is presented, the way this story is told.
1: Well, and you know, we, we, all, we know these people. Yeah, We know them. We see them. I mean, living in New York, you know, I mean, you, you kind of you would encounter these kinds of personalities um, all the time. You know people who the the one the people that would always like the Ed Begley character, um or even the Lee J. Cobb character, you know, people like that they say things, and I'm like, wow, did you just did you just say that? <laughs> like, you know, wow, you just said that out loud. And it's kind of like they may not even be aware or they may not care that you know but they I mean, I am who I am.
0: Mm-hmm. like,
1: uh, no, it's uh, it's a movie that I go back and I watch every couple of years, and I I go back and I watch this and I watch the 1997 Showtime uh, adaptation that they did that William Friedkin directed with Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Uh, it's good. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, again, you know, you watch it and you know, you think of the. Uh, I mean, it's 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 another exceptional cast, but nothing beats this this feature film cast.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and it's it's funny because we had two directorial we've had two directorial debuts that we've talked about and Citizen Kane and Twelve Angry Men and I would agree with you about Twelve Angry Men. I I think it is it is one of the best directorial debuts. I mean I I, I mean I I think and I mean in addition to Citizen Kane, which I mean a lot of people say is the greatest, and I you know, I, I understand where they're coming from. I love this and I love uh, the Maltese Falcon by John Huston. I think is a oh, tremendous yeah. direct debut as well. And then we have two performances here by Henry Fonda. We've got Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath, who's very, who is much more certain of himself as a character than juror number eight is, but it's just as that uncertainty and that wanting to be, wanting to distinguish wanting to basically discuss the situation is critical to that character, is important to that character's development over the course of the film. Tom Joad's conviction towards action, towards, con- towards doing things, and his certainty of how he feels about things is what makes that character so interesting. So there's a really interesting dynamic between the two Fonda performances that we've talked about.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, and just, uh, you know, like the the beauty of like what, what Fonda did, like Fonda didn't have to push or anything. All he had to do was listen and say, you know, what, um, you know, using what they were saying, not necessarily against them. Yeah. But like, uh, like kind of like, well, you know, we don't, you know, you said we don't need all of the evidence, you know, and then, uh, you know, you could throw all the other evidence out. And then when they, and then Lee J. Cobb in the end, it's, it's people who bring, he was bringing obviously his personal, you know, you know, he's, you bring in your personal baggage. In yeah. At, uh, and he realized that you, you, know, you can't do that. You have to weigh the evidence. You can't uh, bring your prejudices in.
0: Yeah, it's about. I mean, and that's that's what makes this so such an interesting look at the criminal justice system in general, and in particular, being a juror on on a uh, trial where it's like you're meant you're asked to be objective, you're asked to, um, you're asked to leave your biases uh, at at the door, but at a certain point, especially. But I'm sure there but at a certain point you would imagine that there are going to be times where you're not gonna be able to do that. And it's just the nature of mm-hmm. being human. And uh I I think that's one of the things that's one of the things that I think is so brilliant about the approach that Fonda's character takes in this is that he's also stripping them of their Biases in this particular situation, and I think that's that's so much. And Lumet's direction is very simple in this movie, but he it's completely what this film needs. It's mm-hmm. not just like he could he could have directed this, you know, he could have directed this as intensely and as you know. Much about different close-ups, getting dif- different close-ups and stuff, and there's some of that in this movie, but it's not to an extent where it becomes a an over-the-top melodrama.
1: Yeah, and you could easily do a like, go melodrama with this, but yeah. it's like like you see, you know, when the camera like quick, quick cuts, like you know, to all of the jurors' faces, and like they realize that, and, and you see the sweat, like you know, be mm-hmm. down like and it's kind of like you know you could you could almost look in and get a sense of like their conscience being shaken yeah that's that's an extraordinary thing i mean like you know uh because yeah like there's no fancy you know like uh you know over the top uh you know crane shots or anything like that Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean it's, it's just simply honestly told you know, um, the actors, they're all confined in this box and like, you know, and then, you know, when they do the close-up, they're confined in that as well. They have nowhere to go. Yeah. And that's it, it, no. Well, and it,
0: it's funny because it is, It is, you can, to a certain extent, you can kind of tell that it's from a director who's familiar, more familiar with television than he is film, but he also understands how some of those things that you would employ... In television, how they would work in a cinematic landscape, yeah. and I—I I think that's one of the. I, I think that is that is so brilliant, and I mean, it's something he would do throughout the rest of his career. And he—he oh, sure. um, he was just one of the best te- filmmakers ever. And he
1: was—he was a favorite of mine as well. I mean, you know, you just again you look down the list of. Uh... Films that he did, he had some he had some unusual films in there, you know. But like uh, always, like working, like just always. I mean, mm-hmm. had this 50 plus year career, and people would always love to just work with him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, bring up with Twelve Angry Men?
1: No, no. I mean, it, and just if if anyone who hasn't seen it, do it. And if you've seen it, do it again because it's it's it uh it never disappoints.
0: Yeah, I actually picked up the uh Criterion Collection last or the Criterion DV Blu-ray uh last year during one of their fifty percent off uh sales and it was it was completely worth it. I'm so glad I oh, yeah. own this movie now. I'm so glad that I'm familiar with this movie now. It's just a tremendous film. And uh all of these are really, really rich films and I think one of the things... I mean, now, grand, we're going after films that are famous, that are some of the most famous films of all time. But, I mean, that's part of what I wanted to do with this series, where it's like we're talking about some of the most famous movies of all time. Do they still have that weight that made them the most famous movies of all time at that moment? I mean, I, I it's hard to say... It's hard to say that they don't i mean especially when you look at this group you have the political the look at politics in mr smith goes to washington which still feels very which i mean grand we it's hard to keep the um optimism about politics that jefferson smith has right now but you feel like based on what we know about politics and how things work, that this is exactly how it will always be relevant and it'll mm-hmm. always be aspirational. And I think that's one of the most important things about it. you look at Sunset Boulevard, you're fami- if you're familiar enough with Hollywood <coughs> and what Hollywood <coughs> does. And I I think it's it's hard not to see that reflected in Sunset Boulevard now, even. And it's still, and like a lot of Billy Wilder films, they're as contemporary, they're as exciting, they're as compelling as they ever were. And they just resonate to this day. And then you look at 12 Angry Men, and, you know, you you always are just never sure what's going to happen with a jury. I mean, with I the, think... And
1: the legal system in general.
0: Yeah. And the way that Lumet breaks that, and Reginald Rose breaks that down in this film for ninety minutes, I mean, it's as it's as riveting as it had to have been in nineteen fifty-seven.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They um, they did a um, God, I guess about six, seven years ago. They did a. Oh shoot. Broadway production of the play. Uh, there, there, there are there are numerous uh, iterations of the play. You know, like play like Twelve Angry Jurors, to include men and and women. And um, yeah, they did the Reginald Rose uh, script. It was good. It was mm-hmm. good. Still, like you know, in a live theater, like you know. I don't know. There was just it, it didn't have the same effect. I mean, of course, it was still riveting just because of the actors who were involved. I know Philip Bosco was in the show and um, Larry Brigman and and some other great uh, theater actors. Boyd Gaines played juror number eight, but like it, you you lost that that claustrophobic feel of like of the the movie of like being in that room. Yeah, You're seeing wet and that 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 one that rickety old fan and just you know it's now nah, it's i think it's 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 definitely one of the great
0: mm-hmm. great of all time yeah well tim once again as always thank you very much for joining me i i i always look forward to our discussions and i i love that we have this little series now that um we can go back at look at some of the great movies in Hollywood history and sort of reflect on them now and sort of whether, see whether they have that same lasting power that they must have back in the uh, time that they came out.
1: Absolutely. No, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Brian. And uh, yeah, we got to find three more now.
0: Oh, I already have those in order. I'll, I'll tell you once we, uh, once we're done here.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, Uh, then uh, I'll see you next time
0: I'd like to thank Timothy for joining me today on the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast I already have the uh, like I teased on there I've got the three for the uh, next episode of the Established Classic series coming up and I'm hoping you will really enjoy those that's going to do it for this episode of the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast as always check us out on YouTube, Apple Google and Spotify as well as the Sonic Cinema podcast uh, Patreon at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema, uh, twitch.tv backslash scuttle lemur, as well as wwwsonic Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good day. <laughs>